Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. So today we are going to finish up talking about the environmental reconstruction. Uh, specifically, we're going to talk about human modifications to the environment, and then we're going to jump right feet first into the ancient Maya and their world. So we left off talking about the different lice and how we can trace the DNA divergence of the lice. Oh, can someone, thank you very much. Get that door. Um, so we'll talk about, yeah, we talked about the DNA diversions of lice, and that's how we could tell when, for example, we lost our body hair and when we got clothing. Hooray. One of the grossest proxies that I can think of. Um, other human, um, you know, not necessarily uh, changing the environment around them, but choosing which environment they're going to live in or take part in. Um, a lot of people are going to live around lakes or rivers or other well, um, well thought of locations, right? If uh, before humans were making a uh, large impact on the environment like we do today, uh, they were, rather than changing their environment, they were moving to be in an advantageous location. Now, before the advent of agriculture in the Neolithic Revolution about 10,000 years ago, uh, there were certainly ways in which humans, especially hunter-gatherers, modified the landscape. They might um, burn back or knock back plants that they didn't like and encourage the growth of plants they did like. Uh, they might burn down forests or grassland to encourage fresh sprouts to come up because the deer like that and they would go hunt the deer. Also, an inadvertent way that uh, humans had modified the landscape before agriculture was killing off um, megafauna. We'll talk more about this at some point. Uh, but basically, these large animals like woolly mammoths, giant camels, giant ground sloths, and others that died off, um, I touched on them briefly, I think, last class, um, in the New World and Australia, they had very important roles to play in keeping woodlands open and keeping, um, you know, trampling down brush and opening up areas for smaller animals. And so with the removal of these large mammals, it changed the landscape because it's like when all the predators are removed and the deer and bunny populations spring up, you know, like when the wolves are removed. It's kind of the same thing, but the plants sprung up when these large their large predators, or you know, the large uh, mammalian herbivores, were removed. Um, some people actually talked about bringing elephants over to North America to like reinstate the uh, pre-human landscape by letting the elephants kind of trample and open up these areas. Interesting enough. Once we get to agriculture, um, in starting about ten thousand years ago, but it really picks up about six thousand years ago. People started to modify the land, uh, and these are some of two pictures of some of the more extreme versions of that. In, has anyone ever been to Peru or South America? How was it? It's cool. Did you get to see? Oh, your family's from there. Did, have you seen terraces and things like yeah, this? Yeah. Oh. yeah, because uh, Peru has two types of land 
vertical, up, basically vertical up and down and non-existent. So I guess that's one type of land. Um, but plants grow better in a flat, or at least agricultural plants grow better in a flat environment. And so they have flattened it out uh, by making these terraces. It's an extremely labor-intensive way to get a little bit of land, uh, but it also makes really impressive uh, pictures and grows a lot of crops. Um, in the Aztec area, they made what were called floating gardens, but that's kind of a misnomer because they were actually anchored to the ground. They're called chinampas, C-H-I-N-A-P-A-S, um, or um, swamp. They're basically swamp gardens. And so if you're looking, here's the swamp. You dig out a trench. You throw all this dirt on top. You drive down stakes here on either side and you create a um, artificially raised uh, area that still gets a lot of good water because the water line's very high. So all the plants in here have a good uh, moisture. The water also keeps frost off. You can grow fish in here and eat them, hooray. Uh, and also the, the lily pads and other aquatic vegetation can be thrown on top. Anyway, uh, this is a way that the Aztecs and the Maya and also in South America, they're finding evidence of these uh, drained swamp, not really drained swamp, but uh, kennelized swamp agriculture. They were extremely productive. Um, three crops a year, as opposed to if you were just growing crops the old-fashioned way, you'd get like one crop a year, so pretty neat. Um, these all, of course, leave records in the, or um, traces in the archeological record, so we still know about them. Those would be, I guess you would, if you're, from the point of view of a human, I suppose those agricultural um, adaptations would be seen as beneficial. But there are also certain things that we might subjectively judge to be negative or deleterious. Uh, one of them is pollution. Um, and it can be deleterious to us or dangerous for us, like these lead pipes uh, in Rome that brought uh, water, right? We all perhaps know that. Uh, P, you know, um, PB, the symbol for lead, comes from plumbing. It's the same root as plumbing um, because plumbing originally was with lead pipes. And obviously, lead leaches out neurotoxins and causes uh, all kinds of crazy things like violence and you know, uh, degradation of, of intelligence and things like that. So um, some people have even argued that the lead pipes of Rome uh, polluted the water enough that it caused Roman downfall. I don't think that it's that big of a, I mean, it's a problem, but it's not the only problem that Rome had. Good thing that we don't have lead pipes now, and we haven't seen that problem for a 1,000 years. 08, Flint, Michigan, and uh, other places, except not Madison, right? They proactively went and changed all the pipes here, I heard on the radio, which is like, all right, good on you. Um, but uh, some some pollution we had to learn to deal with, like when we were hunter-gatherers, you know, you could poop and leave. But when you started living in one town and or one village, as a farmer, you had to poop in the same spot every day. And without germ theory, you might not know why you're getting typhoid <laughs> or other problems. Actually, two of our presidents probably died because the Washington Swamp was a large, open cesspool. That's a nice way to put it. And so uh, they might have actually gotten sick from the sewage around Washington. Good thing things have changed. Now it's just figurative sewage. Okay, um, and I would say that I would say that during any administration, <laughs> it's always terrible. Anyway, uh, 
We also can talk about deforestation. Uh, like I said, even before there were agriculturalists, humans were burning down the forest to grow um, plants that their game animals like to eat. But this is a guy uh, burning uh, what's going to become a cornfield. And this can be overdone to the point that it causes desertification or creating deserts where there was once previously vegetation. Uh, but this can also be, I know it looks terrible. It looks like this guy's burning down a uh, rainforest and, you know, being, growing up where we grew up when we grew up, you know, you don't burn down rainforests. But if your population is small enough, this actually is sustainable, which I know it does not that. If I put that up and put sustainable under it as a meme on Facebook, everyone would yell at me, I'm kind of burning down the forest. It, it's a question of how large your population is and how often you're doing it and how much you're doing it. So. Uh, this can often cause erosion as human beings have chopped down forests and um, other um, plants that they didn't want around. This has often led to erosion and the losing of topsoil, for example. And we'll talk about agriculture right before we get to Mesopotamia. And then Mesopotamia will be our st case study about degradation of land, in this case, um, the salting of fields. And so here we have, for example, some pretty massive erosion happening on the side of this of this hill because the forest has been taken down. Okay. All right, that's that. Now we are going to change gears and get to what is objectively the most exciting ancient society, the Maya. That's completely objective. Um, once I get to my notes. Uh, we are going to basically follow the chapter that you read um, out of the book. However, we are going to go a little more into depth in the history of the ancient Maya. Um, we will spend a little time, uh, a little more time talking about some areas that I didn't have time to cover as much in the book. Um, and then at the end, we'll talk about uh, hubris and one of the central themes of the rest of the class, really. As this marks the beginning of a lot more talking about societies and not just like throwing a whole bunch of terms and ideas about how archaeology works at you, we're actually going to learn something about how people lived in the past and the questions they faced, the problems they faced, and the problems and how they're related uh, or not to the problems that we're facing. So almost all of the case studies we're going to get into, uh, including Mesopotamia, Rome, Egypt, um, Aztecs, and Inca, will basically run in the same format where we'll introduce the area environment. We'll go through the history and culture. We'll talk about their demise. And we'll talk about a different factor. Obviously, we've just been talking about environmental reconstruction. And so for the ancient Maya, we're going to talk about the environment as one of the primary movers and shakers that caused their downfall. However, as I'm going to stress to you over and over and over, it wasn't just the environment for the Maya. It, the environment is linked to everything else. Um, but this is just a case study where the environment uh, is a good, we have good clear indications of how the environment was changing. So the region that we're going to be going through um, is between what's called the Isthmus of Tehuantepec and uh, the western borders of Honduras and El Salvador. So um, here's what's called the Isthmus of Tehuantepec. 
and here's Honduras and El Salvador. It's the narrow part. Um, if you're looking at a map of Mexico, it's like the part that cuts off the thumb, the lower thumb of Mexico. Um, if you want the spelling, I'll put it back up here just for a second. Isthmus of Tehuantepec to Honduras and El Salvador. Um, we will largely be looking at, um, well, we're going to look at sites from all over the region. Usually what I'll do um, when we're going through the chronology is for each chronological period, I'll have like a type site or maybe either the biggest, most important site of that period, or we'll talk about a site that really exemplifies or is a, the best example of what life was like or what cities were like um, at that time. So we'll have to meet the different regions. So here are a lot of the sites. Uh, we'll only be dealing with like five of them, maybe six of them. Um, here we have rivers, as you can see up here in the north. There are no rivers whatsoever. It is a karstic plateau, and I'll talk about what that means in a little bit. But as you can see here, there's quite a vast uh, arterial system of rivers uh, that ease the transportation. We'll also talk about trade, and the rivers will come back then. And you can see there's a big variation in the annual precipitation of this area from the extremely dry north where I used to work, where we get less than 500 millimeters of rain a year, so that's 500 mil millimeters, to places where you're getting over 4,000 millimeters a year. So like, here's 2,000 millimeters, so double that. That's how much rain they get every year. Uh, kind of a big difference, basically a desert to a uh, rainforest. And you can see that there's quite a lot of variability in elevation. You have this extremely flat plateau that was only until recently under, underwater up through these very, very high mountains over 3,000 meters tall. I'd say, think about, mm, yeah, I would say the Maya area for its size is the most diverse ancient geography we're going to be talking about um, because it has, you know, oceans, it's got rivers, it's got deserts, it's got rainforests, it's got high mountains, it's got Piedmont, it's got everything. Whereas, you know, um, Rome is much bigger, and yes, it has most of those things, but it had to get much bigger before Rome had all these different eco-zones. Eco and so the diversity there um, is going to be really interesting when we talk about trade, because each different ecological area or biome will have uh, different products that they want to trade around. So that's kind of fun. So if we're looking at a satellite map, we're going to start in the bottom, uh, in the south here, boop, at the Pacific coast. So there are uh, four or five regions we're going to talk about. Uh, the first is the Pacific Coast right here. Um, so does anyone know why it rains a lot in Seattle? Yes. So um, as uh, warm, as warm uh, ocean air hits a uh, wall of mountains, basically, and goes up, it can't uh, as it cools, it can hold less water. Um, cooler air holds less moisture, and so as it goes up, it precipitates out lots of moisture. And then as it crosses over and warms up again, as it goes over the plains, it's really dry air, but it's warm. So it can suck up lots of moisture. So that's why we have a desert right behind uh, the Rocky Mountains, in short. Same thing happens here in Guatemala uh, to some extent. It doesn't have this great drying effect because of how moist 
and wet it is here already. Um, but as it hits this coast, a lot of that water gets dropped. And when I, when I lived over there, you could almost set your watch at like 3.30 within a couple of minutes. It would just, just downpour. And you can see all these, um, in the middle of all of these different uh, lines here, you have river drainages because each one of these, um, each one of these uh, river valleys was kind of its own ecological place. More so in South America, it will have a similar effect. We'll talk about that later. Um, this is the Pacific Coast. Actually, just up the coast is one of the best, like right here, it's one of the best surfing places in the world. Um, and when I lived here, this is one of my photos, when I lived here on the coast, we lived nine minutes from the Pacific Ocean. And on the weekend, we would go. Um, and you could go like body surfing because the way it was awesome. It was a great weekend. And like these coconuts would be opened by like a six-year-old with a machete that was like as, half as tall as he was. And he'd just you'd order a coconut. And he'd be like, whop, 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 whop. Here you go. And he'd just be like, oh, kid. He had all his fingers, so I don't know. Uh, and they would fry up fresh-caught fish that they'd walk in off the beach with. I mean, it was, you know, it's a tough job. Someone has to do it. Um, so here I was uh, just very deep. Very uh, sediment that has been, dis uh, what do you call it, uh, deposited by that great uh, erosion, right? So all this rain is eroding out the volcanic hillsides and depositing these very deep uh, layers of soil. And so we're digging back to about 2,000 years ago, and that's like two or three meters down. So it's a lot of sedimentation because of all that rain. This is what the landscape often looks like along the coast, um, you know, deep red uh, soil, lots of rolling hills and plains. And you know it's pretty open. And that's probably similar to what it's been like for quite a long time. Then we get to the highlands. You go uphill into these mountains, where you have, um, you see these uh, volcano, volcano, um, and other very high um, um, mountainous type of tectonic uplift. That traps a lot of water, so you have these really breathtaking vistas. Um, it's much cooler. Does anyone know, other geology question, um, why there are often volcanoes around the Pacific? You know, the, Perhaps you've heard of the Ring of Fire, where there's volcanoes all the way around the Pacific. Does anyone have a, yeah? Yes, exactly. Uh, do you happen to remember the? Uh, Name of the, it's a so subduction zone. So if this is the Pacific plate, it hits what's the, uh, the terrestrial plate here um, all across North and South America, and it goes down. Well, and this has been um, underwater for so long. I should probably draw this up a bit. There we go. Um, that it's absorbed lots of water. So not only does this pressure kind of push up, right? And there's pressure holding this, so it creates this updraft of, um, of mountainous material. Well, all this water that's kind of waterlogged, this giant amount of earth that's being subducted into the Earth's you know, um, molten underlayers, uh, that turns to gas. And so within about 100 kilometers, 60 miles to 100 miles or so, Behind the coast, behind where the subduction zone happens, that gas has kind of hit critical mass. And it wells up. And it does all kinds of things, like superheats the magma and blah, 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 blah. And it makes 
volcanoes that come up about uh, 60 to 100 miles inside the coast, and it helps build up these mountains. So it's not only a mountainous region because of the tectonic plates crashing it together, but also because of all this volcanic activity, and the volcanoes are still active today. Um, it's also uh, called the cloud forest up here because a lot of the uh, region is misty and uh, covered in clouds because of the altitude and interplay of moisture. Pine trees and things like that, uh, as well as quetzal birds. Has anyone been to Guatemala? They use the quetzal as their um, Q-U-E-T-Z-A-L, quetzal. It's a beautiful bird with long green feathers, and the feathers were used um, as kind of a prestige item for the ancient Maya. They live up in the highlands, and you had to catch them and pluck out. They're kind of like peacocks. They had, uh, they had their own uh, plumage that you get plucked out. Anyway, moving on, the southern lowlands are probably what you think of when you think of the ancient Maya. When you read National Geographic, you have, I imagine, I don't want to put thoughts in your head, but probably uh, you're thinking of Tikal or some you know, jungle kingdom with these temples and things like that. That's the southern lowlands. Here I am, a much younger version of me, uh, standing next to a uh, ceiba tree. They have these large buttress roots because even though it looks like a very lush environment, it actually doesn't have, the soil isn't as deep. Um, and so they, the trees create these giant um, buttress roots to kind of hold themselves up. Um, it is a hot, damp, for me, uh, uncomfortable region because of that humidity. Uh, it's great for plants, though. And as you can see, um, this mound here and that mound there are, if we were looking over the top of them, two mounds like this, and they were a ball court. And we'll talk about exactly what the ball game was um, and what this special um, building was as well. But these are pretty common in the classic period. Uh, and you can see here the point I'm making by having this slide is how prolifically the plant growth is, uh, or how prolific the plants grow, and how they kind of tear apart um, and hold together a lot of these mounds. Because you can see the roots getting completely through all these rocks. Um, so on the one hand, they're kind of anchoring them in place, but they are also dislodging them and pushing them around. So you're kind of competing with the vegetation all the time. Uh, up where I worked in the northern lowlands where we're going next, plants would are, um, preferentially grow on these mounds because the soil was so shallow that these mounds held moisture better, not like there was a cistern or anything. It's just that they had all the surface area in the nooks and crannies for water to hide. Boats uh, today, as in the past, uh, were the primary way to get around, and uh, some sites you can still only access really by boat. We'll talk more about the rivers when we get to the trade section. And then the northern lowlands. Uh, this is where I worked. Remember, it's very flat and it's very dry. It is. Um, it was recently under the, I guess, Gulf of Mexico and Caribbean. Uh, it would have been less distinct uh, before the peninsula came up. But because it's only emerged within the last 50 to 100,000 years, uh, the soil is very, very shallow. So you can see limestone, which is what this is because it was 
again, it was previously under the ocean, so all of these stones that you see were precipitated down calcium carbonate shells that have been compressed into, um, compressed into stone. And then over time, uh, plants have grown up and colonized this very fresh um, land, but it, not enough to really cause very deep uh, soils. When I did my excavations for my dissertation, the deepest excavation I did was a meter 25. It's like that deep. The average was 60 centimeters, so that deep. So this is what's called a cenote. And it is one of the most important um, features of the northern landscape. And I'll talk about that when we get a little bit more into the history. Um, as this place was one of the regions that didn't really collapse. We always hear about the collapse of the Maya. It only happened in some areas. Um, the northern lowlands, like remember uh, back earlier I said there's no rivers? That's because if you look at it from the side, the water table is way down here. And all of this limestone, right, lots of layers of limestone, it's very porous. And water, when it rains on the ground, just runs through all kinds of cracks and crevices and whole, you know, there's tons of caves in this area. Very quickly, within hours, reaches the water table. There's no surface water. So uh, one aspect of limestone is that it's very soluble, or water can um, break it up and um, so dissolve it, especially the more acidic uh, rain becomes. And so what happens is, especially down here, we start to get kind of like caverns of collapsed limestone. And uh, over time, right, like this would fracture and collapse and then fracture again and collapse. And eventually, it would fracture enough and collapse that it reaches the surface. And then, right, the walls are going to even out. And you get what's called a cenote, which is large. Uh, the Spanish word that was stolen, stolen, how do you steal it? It is uh, a bastardized version of the, the Maya word, sonote. Um, and they got cenote, C-E-N-O-T-E. -E, that's the most common word today, cenote. Um, and these are where the Maya would actually access the water. And this is anywhere from 5 to... 30 meters, or yards, I guess, if you want to use yards, below the surface. So sometimes you can just lower a bucket. Other places, you have to lower a bucket very deeply. Um, in other places, there are actually cave systems, and they've built um, like ladders and stairs to reach down to the bottom of these cenotes. They're, there's always water in there. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Like License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.